For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Across the Sky podcast, our Lee Enterprises National Weather Podcast. I'm meteorologist Joe Martucci. I am at the Press of Atlantic City. Join with me this week, Sean Sublet at the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Matt Holliner out in the Midwest. Everybody, you know, it is March, and I believe it was maybe Charles Dickens that said, uh, when the sun's out, it feels like summer. When you're in the shade, it feels like winter still. And that's true because today it's like in the 40s for us, and when you're on the sun, it's like, hey, pretty good. Don't even need the heat on in the car. But as soon as you pop it to a little corner around the building. It uh, certainly feels chilly. But what do I know? I'm just in the north. Sean, tell me what's going on down in the south. You know, I, I don't think that's wrong. I don't think that's wrong at all. We're about 50-52 here and the sun is out. But yeah, the sun angle getting high. We've got the equinox just around the corner. Um, so it, it it's getting there. You're in the sun. It's 50 degrees. There's a little cool breeze. It's very tolerable. But man, once that sun is gone, you're like, oh, I need that jacket. I need that hat in a hurry. And of course, after we've had such a, a warm winter, we're very concerned for next week, a big, a big hard freeze coming. But we'll we'll chat more about that a little bit later on. But enjoying the weather we have as long as we have it, Joe. Exactly. You know, I should say as well, uh, Kirsten Lang could not be with us this week. We miss Kirsten, but we will have her shortly again. Matt, what's happening out? In the Midwest, I know in our text thread this morning, you said, hey, another winter storm with the open mouth emoji. Uh, no sun in the Midwest. It is now the fifth week in a row with a winter storm. The big winter this time, uh, Wisconsin, it looks like six to eight inches common in some parts of Wisconsin, maybe nine to ten in a few spots. Iowa getting snow, Nebraska getting some snow. Starting out as rain here in Chicago, but changing over to snow. You know, I'm reminded of the Hank Williams song from our <laughs> podcast of the top 10 weather songs, Weatherman. You Check know, it he, out. His, <laughs> his line is, I can't stand no more rain. Well, I can't stand no more snow. I need a major change. <laughs> do you think this is something <laughs> That's what it needs to be changed to. I am, I am so over the snow. I am, I am ready for a spring warm up and a lack of snow. You know, I'll take just thunderstorms now instead of snow because these snow forecasts are, our killer, <laughs> trying to figure out where the heaviest snow is going to be. When is it going to change over to snow? Man, it has been a stretch here in the Midwest. As one of our two uh, native Texans, though, and our weather team, though, are, would you rather be in Texas? Are, is that what you're saying, Matt? Or would you rather be in Chicagoland? <laughs> right now in <laughs> Texas, 
In the <laughs> summer, I will quickly change my mind and I will come right back to Chicago. I'm actually going to Nashville next week, so I'll get a little bit of a warm up. So I'm That's actually true. taking a little spring break. And uh, I hope no winter storm hits the Midwest for a six week in a row because I'm going to be off. Maybe I'm the bad luck. Maybe it'll quiet down That's once, it. I, once I leave and go on vacation. At least I'll get some That's warmer it. temperatures in Nashville. <laughs> well, speaking of spring break, uh, we have already seen signs of spring here in the east, uh, especially uh, creeping up the east coast specifically. Uh, it just seems like, you know, the, the trees are budding. They're even blooming in a couple of places. So for this episode, uh, we have back on Dr. Teresa Crimmins from the National Phenology Network. She is the director of the Phenology Network. Um, she is going to talk to us all about uh, kind of the contrast across the country, because yes, very early with spring in the east, but in the west and where you are based, uh, Teresa, in Arizona, a little bit behind schedule. And before we get to you, let me just say uh, happy birthday on behalf of the Lee Enterprises weather team. So we appreciate spending part of your birthday with us. Thank you, Joe. I honestly can't think of a better way to celebrate. It's a delight to be back with you all. This is so so much fun. We're going to have that as part of our promo materials when we try to get other guests on saying like, look, you love being on your birthday uh, here. And you are our first recurring guest as well. I feel very fortunate. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's just talk about it from like the top, you know, top level here. What are we seeing with spring and spring's development across the country? And then we'll dive into some certain regions. Well, thank you. Um, I'm so excited to spend today talking with you about my favorite topic, really, which is what's happening outside in the plants and animals. Um, <laughs> so you all are much better positioned than I am to be able to talk about the weather conditions that we have experienced in the country throughout the winter and the spring. But what I study and what our organization tracks is how that impacts plants and animals. And as I think everybody is really well aware, we've had a really mild winter and a very early start to warmth in much of the Eastern US. And as a consequence, we are seeing plants and animals respond much earlier than we normally do. Uh, all across the Southern, the Southeastern states, and then as you indicated, creeping up the mid-Atlantic and, and into the Northeast, we are seeing plant activity in particular up to 30 or more days ahead of schedule. Um, and when we say ahead of schedule, what we, we compare this year to when things happened in the last three full decades, so 1990 to 2020. And those actually are, that those three decades include some of the warmest years that we've ever had on record. So the fact that this year is standing out among those years is really even more extra special, honestly. It's it's kind of remarkably early in in a lot of places. Yeah, uh, definitely early here in Jersey. A lot of budding on on the trees. Although you know, kind of what you were alluding to just a couple seconds ago, it's not like this has been super early for us in the sense that I remember back in 2020 we had a lot of early budding as well, just given the warming climate that we're in. I do want to ask this though: if you go to your website, so it's usanpn.org. That's where you can check it out. You have two indexes here. So you see a spring leaf index anomaly and then a spring bloom index anomaly. Could you tell people the difference between the two of them? Sure, I'd be happy to. So by and large, in temperate systems, which is mo most of the country, what we have, we have a clear rest period in the winter where plants and animals pretty much take a break from activity. Insects and animals tend to hibernate or go into something called diapause. 
plants drop their leaves and pretty much, or, or die back completely, um, their above ground vegetation disappears in the case of herbaceous perennials. And what triggers them to, to become active again in the spring is in large part temperature. Um, and so when we experience earlier warmth, we tend to see earlier activity. What these indices that we've developed uh, reflect are the amount of warmth that, that organisms need to be exposed to in order to kind of wake up and start undergoing their activity in the spring. The fact that one is called the leaf index and the other one is called the bloom index is actually, it's a it's a artifact of the, how the indices were developed and doesn't necessarily mean that it reflects leaf activity or bloom activity in all species, honestly. The leaf index um, is effectively the set of conditions that are required to prompt leaf out in plants that are among the earliest to leaf out in the spring. And so it does a real good job of, of predicting leaf out in things like uh, lower um, understory shrubs like lilacs and honeysuckles and some of those other shrubs that, that need to put on their leaves before the overstory trees leaf out. It also does a pretty good job at capturing activity in some of the plants that come up the earliest in the spring, like um, daffodils and crocuses and those kinds of things. However, it doesn't necessarily reflect when all plants leaf out. The bloom index, which occurs a little bit later in the year, it's usually between four and six weeks after the leaf index is reached at a location, is another um, indicator. It's, it's, it's also it also reflects an amount of heat that a location has been exposed to. It's called the bloom index because it reflects when those early active plants like lilacs and honeysuckles tend to flower. But interestingly, it also does a pretty good, good job of indicating when the overstory canopy trees put on their leaves. So things like leaf, um, maples and birches. All right, so just to, to clarify, Teresa, the, uh, the leaf, is before the bloom in the in the indices in they the are. indices right in in real life it depends on the plant right, right. there are that, a lot of species actually that flower before they leaf out and some right. of the most there some of those are the most uh, iconic for us they're right. cherries and apples and and those really beautiful they can you can get those beautiful beautiful um bloom events yeah, that's one of the things that sometimes is a little counterintuitive. So when I look at the indices, that, that yeah, that's I, the difference between no, it's but that's important that and that's good to know. Um, so I want to go back a little bit and talk about not so much what goes deep into the indices, but when we we examine, as you said, the um how how the temperatures have been during the winter and how that guides when we start to see buds, blooms, things leafing out like that. Um, how much of that, and, and obviously every species is different, but is there a broad way to say, well, some of this is, well, it always comes back in the spring because there's more daylight and there's some response to that compared to um, dormancy and, and how cold things are. If you have an especially cold winter, even if it warms up quickly, if the winter has been dramatically cold, you know, you might get a warm March, but how does how does that change when we talk about chill hours and, and things like that? Because we're very concerned about a hard freeze here in the Mid-Atlantic uh, next week. So could I, I, I know that's a lot to unpack, but could you kind of attack that for us? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you're going straight at the nuance, which is so I love this. Uh, what 
we know to be true, and honestly, this is a really active area of research for biologists, what we know to be true is that what wakes plants up out of their winter dormancy varies by species. And some plants and, and insects too are, are very responsive to warmth, regardless of when it occurs. And if, if much earlier season, if warmth is achieved much earlier in the year, like we're experiencing in a lot of the East and the South this year, those plants and organisms just speed up and, and get going earlier in the spring. But there are a number of plants and animals too that actually do pay attention to other cues. They either require exposure to a certain amount of chill before they can pay attention to the warmth or they require day length of a particular amount. And so if that warmth is coming earlier than, um, than, than the, before the days have reached that threshold of how many hours of day length are required, they won't pay attention to it. And what we actually see in some cases is that for plants that and, and organisms that require those other cues, if they aren't being reached, and chill is a big one actually, and this is a concern in the ag industry, with warmer and warmer winters, certain locations aren't experiencing as cold of temperatures. If that chill requirement is not met and we just leap into the warmth in the spring, that can actually delay activity in, in those species. And the consequence of those differential responses in funky years like this is that rather than having everything advance and just undergo its springtime initiation earlier in the year, some race ahead much earlier and some hang back. And then you start to have things called mismatches. And that can have knock-on consequences for um, which species actually get priority access to nutrients and which can become bigger and more abundant on the landscape, um, as well as whether they are active and present when species that they may depend on are active. And a, a really big uh, area where that matters is with pollinators. And if, if plants that require pollinator, pollinators to be present change their phenology at, at a different rate than the, the pollinators are, then that's, a, that's bad for both parties. The plants miss out on that pollination opportunity, which, which can really impact their ability to, to set seed or fruit, and the pollinators miss out on a critical food source. So there's a major concern there. And then speaking to your other concern about risk of frost, that's a very real risk for sure. That is, that is such a major risk of what of this kind of situation that we're seeing this year, where we have much earlier than, than normal warmth, prompting plants and insects and, and other animals to become active earlier in the year. If we have hard freeze events that can have, it can, it can be problematic in that it knocks the plant back or it can be devastating. And, and that's especially possible in the situation where uh, the plants that flower before they fruit, uh, or sorry, flower before they leap out, because flower tissues are generally much less frost tolerant. And if you knock back those tissues, in a lot of cases, the plant can't regenerate flowers in the same season. And if you don't have flowers, you don't have fruits. And we've, in, in some recent years, like you named Joe, 2020, also 2017, 2012, so a number of recent years, even 2010, uh, we, we saw some of those major, the, there were some major crop losses because of freeze events occurring after early season warmth. Well, we're certainly going to keep our fingers crossed for no major freezes, uh, but I, I, always, I always get nervous as we get into, you know, late March, early April, just when we think winter is over 
inevitably some shot of cold comes and hits some part of the country. But we'll keep our fingers crossed because, yeah, this year there could definitely be be some consequences. And another thing, you know, it just sounds like listening to you that like us, uh, I think some people in the country, I think the plants are a little bit confused by the weather <laughs> this winter as well. But I'm also curious, um, you know, you talked about how with the leaf out and the bloom out occurring earlier. Does that speed the whole timeline up so with the plants start blooming earlier and leafing out earlier does that also mean that as we get into the late summer that they may start to drop their leaves early does it speed up the whole timeline or do the plants just stay with their leaves for a longer amount of time they take advantage of the warm temperatures or does the whole timeline get sped up a little bit if everything starts earlier such a good question the jury is kind of out on that as well and it seems like it depends on the species and it depends on what happens sub later on in the year. What we seem to see is that there's a pretty clear, pretty darn clear trend toward advancing spring activity, meaning things are just happening on the long term earlier. But for autumn, meaning leaf color change and leaf drop and senescence, it's it's messier. And it really it comes down to the fact that the cue what cues plants in particular to to kind of close out their growing season is a lot more variable among species. And, and we haven't really pinned it down as well as we have for spring. It seems like it is a combination of a, the accumulation of exposure to chill. So when temperatures start to wind down, as well as the days shortening. But then we can, we what we're seeing increasingly now with the warmer temperatures globally is that plants are getting exposed to more dry conditions than they used to. With those warmer temperatures, you, if you depending on what's happening with the rainfall, you can lead to summer drought and summer drought can really stress the plants out and cause them to just drop their leaves altogether without even going through that really cool color change. So it's, it's tougher to say, honestly. Got it. Well, Teresa, all great stuff so far. We're going to take a brief break. We'll be back on the other side to talk more about phenology and early or late spring, depending on where you are. You're listening to the Across the Sky podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Across the Sky podcast. You can catch new episodes every month wherever you get your podcast. Joined with us is Dr. Teresa Crimmins, director of the National Phenology Network. Uh, we are here to talk with her about spring and all the blooming, whether it's early blooming or late blooming. Uh, Teresa, when we were on your website, you know, you have this map that shows how typical is this spring compared to recent decades. And you look at New York City and you have the earliest spring on record. Philadelphia is the same. The Jersey Shore where I'm at is the same. But then you go out towards you in Tucson and Phoenix, the latest spring on record. I know you're saying a lot of this is through modeling, but there's also some people that are involved with this process as well, right? Yes, indeed. Uh, we One of the major activities that we undertake is to run a program called Nature's Notebook. And that is often referred to as something called citizen science. What that what that means is that anybody can get involved here in helping document what they're seeing in their yard or near their home um, in terms of what's happening seasonally in plants and animals. So we've got since the program launched in 2009, we've had over 25,000 folks participate. And that includes everything from professional scientists to backyard observers. And as a consequence of this, we've got a really pretty a, a rapidly growing rich record of of when things are happening all across the country and it's going on something like 35 million records have been contributed now 
And so that enables us to uh, look to see if we can see the, the, the signature of what seems like an early spring based on modeling in the reports that are coming in through Nature's Notebook. And so, yeah, you mentioned New York, where indeed our, our leaf index is showing the earliest um, start to spring in, in the last 40 years. And what's so cool is that similarly, we see reports coming in through Nature's Notebook where folks have reported leaf out in, let's see, red maple, sugar maple, American witch hazel, and a number of other species, Eastern cottonwood in New York earlier this year than in any other year since the program launched. Um, and this is our 15th year now. So that those, those observations are critically important because they not only help bear out what these models indicate, but those data are used in increasingly in scientific discovery, helping us understand what are the drivers and the cues to activity, um, they are an uh, indicator of what's going on on the ground, and they are increasingly helpful in a whole bunch of different kinds of decision-making applications, things like uh, invasive species management and anticipating the wildfire risk um, and over the course of the season, um, understanding in the impact, potential impacts of allergies, and, and so much more. So it's, it's really, really valuable information. And Teresa, I'm curious if you've gotten any reports on pollen coming in through the Nature's Notebook, because at least on social media, I'm starting to see some people, uh, particularly in the Southeast, uh, post about pollen, and it's oh, awfully man. early for the pollen. And so I think that's got everybody worried. It's like, if we're already seeing pollen now, what is it going to be like when we really get into the peak of pollen season as temperatures continue to warm? So can you say anything about uh, this pollen season and then, of course, allergy season for the folks that are impacted by pollen. Yeah, absolutely. So that is one of the one of the ways that these these information are starting to get utilized. Uh, we see pollen in the air as a consequence of plants flowering. And interestingly, it's not the plants with the pretty flowers, the showy flowers that are generating pollen that's problematic for us. It's plants with flowers that generally are really small and probably not even something you would recognize as a flower. Um, and the reason for that is that since those plants are just relying on wind to move their pollen from one plant to the next, they don't need to bother expending energy on making the plant the, the flowers showy to attract a pollinator. Um, what we have been doing recently is evaluating whether the observations that are being contributed to Nature's Notebook of when different species of plants are in flower can give us an indication of when pollen is in the air. Uh, and and it actually is bearing out that that it is helping. It is is an opportunity to help fill a gap. Um, what we know to be true is that as temperatures have warmed and springs have trended towards starting earlier, the pollen season has similarly advanced. It is now 20 days on average longer in the U.S. than it was in 1990. And in addition, the warmer conditions and the higher CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere are allowing those plants that generate pollen that irritates our, our lungs and bronchial tubes to grow larger and generate more pollen. And there's on average about 20% more pollen in the air than there were, was just 30 years ago. But we don't actually have real great monitoring of airborne pollen concentrations in the country. And what's interesting is that there are a whole bunch of different kinds of plants that you can have sensitivity to. And it's useful to know 
first off, if you suffer from allergies, it's useful to know what are the different species or taxonomic groups that you are most sensitive to. And secondly, it's really helpful to know in your location when those plants are likely to start producing pollen and when it's likely to ramp up. And so that's what we are trying to work out here and actually leverage these um, observations coming into the network through Nature's Notebook um, and to, tr to try to generate some predictive models so that we can help support um, a clearer understanding of, of when things are likely to be most intense uh, in different parts of the country. Yeah, all of that has to be just a phenomenal amount of data to process and make sense of, and then try to, and then to try to put together some kind of a, co a coherent model, mathematically, conceptually. Um, so good on all of y'all for trying to to put that together. Um, on the extension from that, when we talk about the pollen and things starting to flower, you know, one of the things I'm I'm concerned about is when we we look at fruit trees. Uh, every fruit tree is a little bit different. Obviously, there are several species of, of different fruits, peaches, cherries, and all that. Um, one of my concerns, I think, um, because we saw this really bad five, six years ago in South Carolina, was was with peaches. We don't have necessarily a, a big peach crop here in Virginia. Apples are a big thing. Do, could you talk a little bit about what we know about the, the vulnerability of, of some of those, of some of these species of trees that, that produce the fruits that we all love? Sure. Yes. I'm not an expert on the topic, but my understanding is that trees that put on their flowers before they leaf out are especially sensitive to freeze events. Because again, like we said earlier, those flower tissues are pretty frost intolerant. And if you, if they do get hit by a frost, um, if, if, if the freeze is hard enough and it's occurring at, at a particular time in their development, it can kill the, the bud. And then the plant's are not able to regenerate those flower buds in that season. And without flowers, you can't have fruits. And so that is where you can have partial or total crop losses. One thing I recently read on an extension blog that I thought was so fascinating though, was that there are certain species that generate all of their flowers effectively at the same time. And so all of them are in the same phase of development. And that's true for cherries and um, plums, and I think peaches as well. And so if those trees and generally the orchards, the whole orchards will be in, in all the same phase of development. If those trees are in a sensitive phase when a hard freeze event occurs, that's where you can lose everything. What is so? What I found so fascinating though is that that is not true for apples. Apparently apples phase their, their bud development and the most advanced uh, bud is at the terminal end of the branch. And I think I remember those, those buds being called the king apples. And those tend to be the largest and the best quality, highest quality. Um, and, and then there are subsequent buds further down the branches, closer to the trunk, that are uh, at progressively less um, advanced stages of development. So depending on when a frost occurs and how that aligns with those different buds in their different stages of, of development, you could you could lose some, but not all. Um, it's the most problematic when those king buds are, are hammered by frost because those are the, the most um, valued uh, fruits from my understanding, but it doesn't necessarily equate to a devastating situation like it can be with, with the other fruits. And Teresa, going back to the nature's notebook 
I'm assuming that you're open to all reports from all parts of the country, but I'm curious if there are any parts of the country that you would like to get more reports from on any particular kind of reports that would be extra helpful that maybe you're lacking some, you would like to get more reports from a certain part of the country or a certain type of report that you would like to see more of. That is an excellent question. Thank you. So our participation tends to follow population density pretty closely. And that makes sense because what we are inviting folks to do is to sign up and basically make a long-term commitment. What we really are interested in, in um, accumulating is repeated observations on the same individual plants or on animals at a location over the course of the season, because we want to construct a picture of when were things not happening and when were they happening so that we can zone zero in on when was that transition. You know, what we really care about in a lot of cases is when did, when did we go from not having open buds to having open buds? When did that, that, that this transition occur? And then we can put that into context with previous years or projected into the future, seeing is, is that part of a, of a chain of a, of a trend and what are the consequences of that going to be? So what we really, uh, what we really see are a, a heavy density in participation in, in, in the eastern states and and the west coast, and we 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 have few, we have thinner participation in the middle part of the country, and it'd be fantastic to recruit some more folks there. And then, likewise, you asked about specific events or or species. Um, we have a series of campaigns that we list on the Nature's Notebook website where we highlight species that are of particular interest. And those are motivated by a whole variety of different interests. But right now we're just launching a campaign this year called Pollen Trackers, because we really do want to generate more observations of flowering in plants that are problematic for allergies and asthma so that we can try to better fill in that gap and, and get to the place where we can get those um, forecast maps out there. We've also got campaigns focused on things like pollinators and flowering resources for pollinators, because that is that's something that that we're starting to see concern about ecologically. And that has very clear consequences for economics and things like food security. Uh, as well, we've got some stuff in there that are uh, campaigns that are motivated by researchers. Um, and some of the plants and animals are of focus are, are there because they are a joy to observe. And one in particular that might resonate with you is redbuds. Redbuds are just so beautiful and folks love to observe them. And so we have really good participation in the redbud campaign where a researcher based out of Penn State wants to understand how timing and flowering and fruiting in redbuds is changing. And so that's what we're inviting folks to document all across actually all across the country because there is an Eastern red bud and a Western red bud and we're taking observations on both. So anybody who has an interest in learning more, I invite them to check out naturesnotebook.org and don't hesitate to reach out, reach out to me or any member of our staff because we have an awful lot of support that we can provide for getting folks, individuals, as well as groups of, of participants on board. Awesome. Well, Teresa, um, anything else you'd like to add before we wrap it on up for this episode? This is pretty wide ranging, honestly. <laughs> um, <laughs> I feel like you guys did an awesome job of asking the right questions. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you know, it, it's great to have you back as our first recurring guest. That means you're in the you're in the poll position for our first three time guest, too. We'll have to uh, maybe we can do something in the fall. We'll see what happens. But uh, <laughs> if you want to check out more of her work with the Phenology Network, you can go to usanpn.org. 
She's also on Twitter as well. Where can we find you on Twitter? Uh, Teresa Crimmins, T-H-E-R-E-S-A-C-R-I-M-M-I-N-S. Perfect. Well, happy birthday again, Teresa. Thanks for taking time out to chat with us. And uh, we're going to take another break. We'll be back with you on the other side. We'll wrap up and tell you what more we have going on across the sky. And we are back. We say goodbye to Teresa. We say hello again to our weather family here, Matt and Sean. Kirsten will be back with us in due time as well. Um, well, what do we think? First recurring guest. I think Teresa knocked it out of the park again. And I really appreciate um, her really talking about the citizen science part of it. You know, we can't go at this alone, you know, as meteorologists or as phenologists. Um, you know, we need your observations. We need boots on the ground. And uh she tackled that with her nature's notebook for sure. Yeah, ground truth is very much needed in situations like this. You know, we develop numerical and mathematical models to try to figure out things that are going on in the physical world. Um, but we need good data to get those models started to make them better. And so the citizen science stuff is just so important. And hats off to them. This is wonderful work that they're doing. And as she said, we've only got 40 years of models and data for this. Uh, but in a, a warming environment like we have, uh, it's important to keep track of this stuff. So important for, and not just because of pretty flowers and stuff, but agricultural interests. That's a big, big deal, man. You know, we've got to grow fruit. We've got to grow corn. We've got to grow, you know, soybeans, all soybeans. that stuff. So, you know, you know, so many vegetables are grown in California Central Valley, which is going to get just deluged again. Um, yeah, so it's critical stuff. Yeah, one of the things that stood out to me is she said she could use some more reports for Nature's Notebook from the central part of the country. Mm -hmm. I know we have a lot of listeners from the Midwest and Nebraska mm -hmm. and Wisconsin, so this is your opportunity to contribute. And obviously, I think we need more reports in the Midwest because the Midwest is a huge agricultural yes, area. Sir. So this is it's very important information that we need in the Midwest, too, with all the agricultural interests. So uh, if you have any interest at all and you're listening in the Midwest, I think uh, Teresa would love to hear from you and get you as a reporter for Nature's Notebook. Yeah, definitely. And that website again, usanpn.org here. So let's uh, look ahead to what we have going on with our podcast coming up in the next couple of weeks. We have a solo podcast with Sean. It's our, I think it's our first solo podcast here. Sean is yeah. taking matters into his own hands next week. Yeah, the three of you are going to be off doing things. So uh, I'm going to be sitting down uh, with an old colleague of mine, Jess Whitehead. She is at uh, Old Dominion University. And we're going to talk a lot about climate change and, and warmth, what's been going on uh, in the East this year, and uh, and other things regarding to resilience. How, how do we adapt? How do we get ready for a climate that is warming? And of course, she's at, at ODU there in Norfolk, Virginia, and sea levels. Sea level rise is a really big deal, not just on the East Coast, but on the Gulf Coast as well. So we're going to talk about how we adapt, how, we, how do we get ready for these types of things and, and, and manage them the best that we can. Perfect. And then after that, on the 27th, uh, we're going to talk to Liz Lightman. She made history for being the first woman to issue a Storm Prediction Center convective watch, um, which, to be frank, I thought we did that a while ago, but apparently we did not. So You're not alone. I thought that too, man. I was like, yeah. really? It took this long? But she has a yeah. good explanation for that. We'll let her tell that story in a couple of weeks. Absolutely. And then on April 3rd, we have Dr. Ivanov uh, from Michigan here. We're going to talk about micro-scale flooding forecasts. We've had a lot of flooding um, in the West, um, so it's going to be interesting to talk about that. 
Uh, and then, uh, you know, we'll keep it rolling on Mondays from there on out. Um, guys, anything else before we wrap up this episode? I'm looking forward to my spring break. Getting away, <laughs> <That's correct. laughs> getting away from the snow in the Midwest. All this talk about spring. I'm, I'm jealous of y'all on, on the East Coast. It's like, can we move that over here? We can give you all some snow. We've got some to spare. <laughs> I, I'll take a little bit of snow, but I, I want you to enjoy your time over in uh, Nashville, Nash Vegas, as the cool kids say. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going to reconvene here. I'm going to Florida myself next week, going to Baltimore Orioles spring training in Sarasota, Florida. So looking forward to that. For meteorologist Sean Subway at the Richmond Times-Dispatch, meteorologist Matt Holliner in the Midwest, Kirsten Lang, meteorologist Kirsten Lang, who couldn't be here with us from the Tulsa world. I am meteorologist Joe Martucci, and we will catch you guys again next Monday on the Across the Sky podcast. At Sierra University, we've been empowering students to pursue their goals for over 130 years. From innovative degree programs and helpful tools to campus locations focused on creating community for international students, we can help you find your way forward. We even offer international students 25% off tuition on select degree programs. Visit Sierra.edu to learn more. Eligibility rules, restrictions, and exclusions apply. Sierra University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.